Welcome back to Collateral Banter, episode 21. That's right. I'm going to make this a little shorter than usual, but I want to do a quick recording this week, trying to get at least one, two episodes out every week. So on this episode, I feel compelled to talk about Venezuela. It's in the news. I know a little bit about it, but I feel that I need to share some of the knowledge I think that will help people understand what what is really happening over there. I can tie it into the sort of historical understanding of Venezuela, the economy, what's really happening in the country, because I've never seen the United States, the European Union, automatically just recognize another political figure in the country and say, hey, that's the government. Sets a dangerous precedent. If you look at it from a historical perspective, can anyone just decide that any figure in the country is now the leader of the country? I don't know what that means or says or what how that will change international relations. Despite the fact that the most recent election wasn't in any stretch fair or accurate, perhaps, of the elections, that manipulations and elections are happening. So let me start off by saying that a couple things. First, I believe, reading articles today, although I haven't seen many state, is that the military in Venezuela is really in control of the country behind the scenes. They operate the government, and they're probably, I would say they're likely in control. And this is really important because no matter how bad politics can get with the Maduro government, if the military is in control of the country, they provide a certain level of stability. Now, if you see the military fracture, that's where a civil war might end up happening. How did it reach this point, I think, is another question people need to discuss and think about. I would say a couple things about that. First off, when Hugo Chavez won the presidency in 1998, 1999, he won on a populist rage. So Venezuela before that had been long governed by essentially two political parties, very similar to the Republicans and Democrats. I believe the name is AD and COPE, which was like the center-left, center-right parties. And Venezuela had always been a petrol state. If you looked at it from an aggregate, the entire economy, and you divided it equally by the entire population, you get a pretty wealthy country because oil for a long time, especially coming out of the 70s, made it a lot of money. And so Venezuela was very rich, able to invest, and its economy was booming somewhat. But a lot like Russia and other petro-dependent states, when oil prices collapsed in the 80s, the government had to cut back on its spending. Austerity, we like to talk about it. You know, IMF demanded that these cuts be made. The government realized, whoa, oil prices have fallen. What do we do about that? We have to slash social spending. Social welfare spending went down, and this led to protests in a country that is, again, the economy almost solely reliant on oil prices. So, (laughs) Hugo Chavez, who was a a military officer, attempts a coup. I believe it was in 92, attempts a coup. He ends up going to jail, but in many ways, his coup and the subsequent trials and his proclamations afterwards really galvanized those who were most suffering from that austerity measures that were happening as oil prices came down and government tried to realign spending. And look, besides all the austerity, there's massive amounts of corruption graft, theft, it's just pillaging of Venezuela. So Chavez wins in the late 90s presidency. Initially, he's a small-time reformer, but over time, 
he fights the entrenched interests of oil, state oil-owned company. It looks like he loses. There was a coup against him. He's out for a couple days, and then his military officers bring him back. And that's really a mark where he begins to shift sort of his politics and changes the political structure of Venezuela. But in the saving grace for him, oil prices throughout the 2000s go up. And so this gives the Venezuelan economy a lot more money uh, to invest in social programs, public housing, in doing all of these social welfare programs and maintain a certain level of stability from inflation. Although the government was spending a lot and you looked at it, the government won uh, awards for eradicating illiteracy, for doing projects in the Bayros, which are the, you know, the favelas of Venezuela, the shanty towns essentially where a large chunk of the population, and, and I mean, I've seen figures that range from about 50 to 75 percent of the population have always lived in places that were makeshift homes, lack of housing, sanitation, I mean, basic things that humans need. And so when you contextualize that, you can see how modern mass democracy, these people felt the austerity, felt the pillaging. And again, there were many progressives you know, among the elite structures that also believed in, in Hugo Chavez initially. And you see that throughout the 90s when oil prices began to boom, they reached a peak towards the end of the 2000s, that generated significant amount of revenues allowing Chavez to invest in a lot of the social programs that he believed in. And look, and I'm not going to be here as an apologist that all the social programs were amazing and great and perfect and they fixed all the problems. Clearly, there was plenty of corruption. There was plenty of graft. Listen, again, theft, pillaging of the oil state. There was a lack of control over spending where people were spending money and it ended up in their bank accounts. Very typical, but that is a huge part of all the issues that were happening. So you then reach Chavez's death in, I forgot the year, but I want to say 2013. Chavez dies. His vice president is Nicolas Maduro. He takes over. At that same time, first year or two, oil prices begin coming down significantly from that peak. When oil prices come down and we're already starting to decline, in the 2000s, uh, oil prices have fallen. This begins to eliminate large, large segments of the oil money that Venezuela very much needed used to fund their social programs and social welfare state. So that's really key and crucial to understanding Venezuela is that oil prices very much dominate the economy. It's about 90% of the revenue the state has to spend each year. It depends on using that money to pay for imports because Venezuela very much imports all of its other goods. It didn't diversify its economy away from oil. Probably should have done decades and decades ago, right? When you diversify, you can create new industries and stop depending just on oil production for your revenue. But it's easy to just extract oil and sell it on the market and use that money to, to fund yourself. Well, now we've reached a point where oil prices come down and Nicolas Maduro needs to spend money to maintain his his alliances, both with the people on the ground who support him still, which I don't know what percentage that is anymore. I won't even give a percentage. But I believe as well, the military to maintain stability for Maduro must demand a large chunk of the oil prices and the oil companies. They must have huge stakes in that, right? To, to maintain stability, that's what the military provides. But in exchange, they want parts of the resources that make the country rich, international. Despite if Maduro ever is 
ousted from power, they would maintain control over that economy and they can use that revenue for their own personal wealth or for funding state projects they believe in and things like that. And don't forget that Chavez throughout his years in power, he was able to point military officers that believed in the sort of project that he did. And so the control over the military by the Chavez project, by the Chavez government, in many ways, made it easier for Nicolas Maduro not to lose support of the sort of military hierarchy. But I suspect right now that a large part of the military is behind the scenes in control of the government and of the country. So that is sort of the context in a very quick history of how Venezuela got to this point. The collapsing of oil prices is really hampered the economy, hampered its ability to grow, the lack of diversification, lots of corruption and graft in uh, the oil company. And it's made it extremely difficult for the economy in Venezuela. And if you look at the data today, the economy is reeling, lots of I mean, hyperinflation. And that is the key problem I think that a lot of people have to look at is that with inflation growing the rate it is in Venezuela, that uh, the government today can't maintain price stability, meaning people go to stores and prices are constantly increasing. They're constantly having to increase the minimum wage, hoping that people will have just enough cash to go buy goods, but the goods are flying off the shelf because everybody knows if you don't buy the goods immediately, the goods won't be there. Everybody's rushing in to buy goods and there's no way to maintain stability when inflation skyrockets the way it does, right? I mean, inflation means goods are going to start missing from the shelf and that's where they've reached that point in the economy. And then this crisis Long in the making, as I explained in the austerity and the cuts and the decrease in oil prices. But to be fair, people can look at Venezuela and say, well, look, there are a lot of oil countries. You can look at the Middle East and Russia, Central Asia, and say they they also depend on large sections of their economy for oil revenue. Why is Venezuela not as bad as those countries? And look, if you look at the Middle East, for example, as, as a region where a lot of countries very much depend on oil revenue, for the government budgets. The difference there is they have first a percentage of the population that are citizens of that country. They hire cheap foreign labor from from the Philippines, Sri Lanka, other countries to do all of the manual labor in the country. Those aren't citizens. They're hired labor, essentially, to do the work in the country. Brutal and gruesome work. And what you have in Venezuela is, from a historical perspective, a small but powerful middle class that is predominantly white Europeans who have traditionally uh, worked in the oil fields, in the oil economy, in the oil hierarchy. And then you have a large part of the mestizo, the native and black influences in the country, and they make up a large percentage of the Venezuelan population. They've been excluded from the oil wealth. They've been excluded from a lot of the benefits of being a citizen in the country. But that tension between who who gets to be called a Venezuelan, who gets to be a citizen, is in contention. They don't have cheap labor to hire to Venezuela to do all the hard work uh, on the fields and let the Venezuelan citizens benefit and reap all the rewards and all the wealth from the oil money. And so you see there that the racial tension, the historical legacy of Venezuela contributing now to the sort of difficulty that other countries that can use foreign labor, cheap foreign labor, let's not forget that, very cheap foreign labor that Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and a lot of other countries in that region that can use 
that to their advantage and to grow their economy that isn't available to Venezuela. So you also have to remember that when you're seeing all these news that this is a difficult process for this country. Look, in other countries that don't hire migrant workers that depend on oil, almost, most of them, most of them are authoritarian dictatorships, okay? Norway might be the example, okay? But Norway found the oil after it was already rather wealthy, and it's off the coast, and they were able to create funds and balance that. But I would argue, maybe I'm wrong, but I would argue Norway is the exception to the rule, okay? Norway is the huge exception to that rule. There is almost no way that, there's almost no way to, to look at what Norway did and say, why didn't Venezuela do that? Very different countries, very different histories, very different structures that we have today. Social economic structures, the way they were developed, the fact that Venezuela's wealth was predominantly from the oil industry and when oil prices were high, especially in the 70s, it was able to buy social peace, you could think of in one way, through spending and social programs. But after that, it very much suffered and suffered brutally from social exploitation. Hugo Chavez did win an election that was the free and fair election. He did win many elections afterwards. And so the country has, has had a democracy. I would contend at least until recently. I don't know which election one can begin to see that there was more and more fraud. I think as you lose control of inflation, and as they did, and the reason they lost control of inflation is they were almost in some ways thinking they could solve the solutions by just giving people higher and higher salaries, higher, higher minimum wage, and that if people just consumed, everything would be great. And you know that in the end, if you give people too much the ability to consume, you're not investing in the future, not investing in production, which also generates wealth, right? And so there is always that tension between wealth production and consumption. And I don't think people look at that. And so as goods began to fly off the shelf, you saw that there were a lot of problems in the economy, in hyperinflation, the sort of social catastrophe that you see in the country. And I don't know how it would be solved because I think as long as the military feels like it's in control and Maduro serves a purpose as letting the people see him as the leader, they get to rule from behind the scenes, right? And that's kind of ideally what you want to do. You don't want to rule from the front. You don't want the military up front because then ultimately if the economy isn't doing well, you get the blame. But if you're behind the scenes, then you can say, hey, look, it's Maduro's government if you ever have to throw him overboard. And so that's interesting because I, I will say this from everything I've read about Latin American history, Venezuelan military was not involved in politics in certainly the same way as Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and a lot of other countries. But I think that this point that the military is is less behind the scenes is now it's now moved up in the sort of pecking order the hierarchy and control of the country so look that gives you a wide expansive view of what's going on in venezuela we'll talk more about this but i think that this was a sort of an important episode for me to just put out there I'd throw out some curveballs confuse some people that whatever you read in headlines it is significantly more complex has historical origins it started in the 90s there were a lot of good and bad things that happened in the country like every other country but i think we have to understand and remember those before we start condemning what we see today, which is horrific, no doubt about it. But, all right, well, that wraps up part one, I guess, of the Venezuelan story, and I'll continue the story on later. <laughs>